All right, if you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 10. This evening we'll go through a relatively longer passage. We'll go to from verse, from verse 32 to verse 45. We'll go from verse 32 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses, starting from verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles." They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is, a, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Lord God, thank you for your word and allowing us to get a glimpse again at the life of your Son and how he was so humble in the way that he approached life, ultimately he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And as we look at this lesson, the life of Christ, may we ourselves be humble as well. May we not elevate our own abilities, our talents, our resources, or things that we have, knowing that everything that we have belongs to you. Help us always to remain humble and to think of the eternal glories that des rightly deserves for you, Lord. Lord, be with us this evening, give us attentiveness, and allow us to abide by your word and to live according to it. In these things we pray, amen. When I was in college and in seminary, I was there for about, ten, I was in LA for about 10 years. And of 10 years I've been there, I met some very interesting people along the way, and some of the most interesting people 
are, I think, those that work in the entertainment business, people that are in Hollywood or at least aspire to be in Hollywood. Because these people, they, you can really tell them apart because of the way that they talk about life. They oftentimes just talk about themselves. They talk about the shows that they've been on, the celebrities they've met, the places that they're going to go, or rather places that they want to go. People will often, people in this group of people that aspire to be entertainers will talk about how they've been on all these shows. And when you ask them, you know, what show have you been on? They'll say, oh, they were an extra or a background in some show. And they'll pull out their phone to show you that they were in this one little second clip all the way in the back. And they say, see, I was there. I was there when they shot all those takes. Now, there is something about fame and glory that is highly addictive. I think the reason why that is is because it's in, a, in a culture like Los Angeles that it's so vain and it's just built around popularity, people strive for it. People want to be famous, even if it means just by osmosis that they know someone who knows someone who is a famous actor or actress or someone that is well-known. British actor Michael Wilding was once asked if actors had any traits which set them apart from the rest of other from the rest of human beings. And he said, without a doubt, you can pick out actors by the glazed look that comes into their eyes when the converse, conversation wanders away from themselves. I think that's very insightful because people that are prideful People that are obsessed with themselves will talk about themselves. They'll always find a way to interject themselves into the conversation. But we know as Christians that pride is a very deadly sin. And it is a sin that, is, that every other sin kind of fuels. It is in a lot of ways the very first sin. It is the one that caused the devil to fall. It is all about what the one individual wants in their personal self-expression and self-love, man will always exalt themselves because that is in their fallen nature. They want to elevate themselves to the status of God. And as Christians, we understand that should not be us. That should not define the way that we live Yet there is still a temptation for us in the context of the church, in the context of the Christian life, to try to elevate ourselves, to try to put ourselves at the center of everything, whether that means your friend group, you try to make yourself the, the alpha, or in the church context, you want to always be the one in the spotlight. Whatever it may be, there's always this tendency for us and temptation for us to try to elevate ourselves. The book of Mark is a book that speaks about Jesus as a servant. All four Gospels shows us a different aspect of Jesus Christ, shows us different facets of him so that we can behold our Savior. And this particular book talks about how Jesus came into the world to suffer, to ransom themselves for many. I read for, uh, for you verse 45 in chapter 10. This is really a key verse in this entire book. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This book was written for believers during a time of persecution. They needed encouragement to, to just wonder, is this faith 
worth following. And I believe Peter wrote this with the intent to encourage the body that's struggling to, to, to count the cost. They, they want to know if this is really worth living and dying for. And Peter writes this gospel so that the believers will count the cost and, re- and know that Jesus indeed is the one worth living and dying for. Last week, Brian taught on the rich young ruler, and this was someone that was a real person that Jesus engaged. This person thought that he was able to fulfill all the, the laws and did everything in his eyes was right, and even said that he did everything from youth. So even as a child, he, he, he was not lying, he did not steal, which as a parent, I believe that's a lie in and of itself. But this rich young ruler believed that he did all of those things and he deserved to go to heaven. But he, there was one thing that he lacked was that he loved money. And throughout this entire book that we've gone through for the last year and a half or so, each one of these stories about Christ is, is supposed to show us about Jesus, but also show those who've rejected Christ. And here, in this particular section, we're going to deal with pride. Because if we understand who Jesus Christ is, if we understand who he is, then it must cause us to humble ourselves. Because you can't get into heaven if you try to elevate yourself to the one that is above heaven. You can't objectively accept Jesus Christ as Lord if you have a high view of yourself. And as we go through this scene, we're going to just look at different, we're just look, walk through this, this, this narrative here. And we're just going to look at how this contrast between Jesus and how he came to the world as a humble servant and the pride of the apostles. So the first scene we're going to look at is the Lord's prediction. The Lord's prediction. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them, what was going to happen to them. This story here begins with Jesus walking to Jerusalem. We said earlier in last week that this is toward the end of the, the Gospels here. Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem. He's about to be scourged. He's about to be uh, attacked. He's about to be, there's going to be a trial for him. He's going to be crucified, and then he's going to resurrect. So this is really, he's moving towards, the, uh, to, moving towards Calvary. It says here that they were going on the road to Jerusalem. And if you know, and it's not some uh, navigational thing that the Mark in, or Peter intentionally, he's not writing all this just for geographical purposes, but they do have significance. Sometimes we look, overlook these things and we think, oh, he's just moving from one place to another. But you have to understand that Jerusalem, is, it's, it's on a high altitude. It's 2,500 feet above sea level. So when you, if you want to go to Jerusalem, it's not like a straight walk. You have to go up this hill. And Jesus is going up there knowing that he's going to be killed, knowing that he's going to be betrayed. This is all part of God's divine plan. And when he's going to, what he's going to tell them, this is actually not the first time that he said this. It's holding about his prediction of his death. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31 it says that, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Chapter 9, verse 31, 
Jesus says the same thing, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And now in this account, this is the third time he's going to tell them about what's going to happen to him. And he's doing this to give them assurance. And I do believe that the reason why he did this is because he knows that they're going to reject him. And when they reject him, they're gonna, they, there's like some buffer because Jesus already told them what's going to happen. They would have been even more horrified if all of this happened with, uh, if, if, it was, if it was a blind surprise to them. But when they look back at the Gospels, when they look back at all of Jesus' teaching, they, would, they at one point realize Jesus has said this before. And I do believe that's why eventually the apostles were willing to die for Christ is because they remember all that Jesus has taught them. And one of the things that they've learned is that Jesus is God, is God, and that he was able to predict his own death. He predicted perfectly. Everything that he said from chapter 8, chapter 9, now chapter 10, happens exactly the way that he said it. And not only that, but that everything that has happened, it's, it's fulfilled according to God's word. I said that Jesus is walking ahead of them. I mean, he's in front of the pack. He was not He's not being dragged to Jerusalem. People weren't in front of him telling him to go to Jerusalem. He was, it wasn't some sort of nervous thing. that He wasn't uncertain about Jerusalem. He knew why he was going to go there. He went on ahead of them knowing that he's going to be the sacrificial lamb for them. Jesus stayed ahead of his disciples. In a lot of ways, this is a model of what will happen. That Jesus, as he's going forward, he's going to lead them into Jerusalem. He's going to, and he's also going to be the example of what suffering is going to be like. He went ahead of them. They were amazed by him. They, this word amazed means bewildered or, or confused or baffled. Jesus was moving towards his own death. They, I think this is speaking of the disciples here, that they were amazed. And then those other group of crowd that was behind them were fearful. And it means that there was some of them, at least they, they might have heard of what Jesus has said. And, and there, there's some of them that kind of understood, like, what is going to happen to him. So they're fearful what was going to happen. Is it going to happen? Is he really going to get killed? Is it going to, be hap- is it going to happen exactly the way that he said it will? And then Jesus took the 12 aside, even though they were worried Jesus went to minister to them. He was not thinking about his own situation. He brought them, and he was going to tell them again what was going to happen. Peter details the suffering and death of Jesus. Jesus knows every single one of his moments in his life. He'll, and I think he also, what he's going to tell them is also a fulfillment of all things that's in Scripture. He explains how his life and God's word that was promised so long ago, it's going to come head on in this event. That Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, they're going to witness this firsthand. This was written thousands of years ago, and history is going to culminate here. And although Jesus is omniscient, he also knows God's word, and everything is going to come together. The cross was not some sort of miscalculation. It was not some sort of random event by chance. It was all part of God's divine plan. That's why Jesus was moving ahead of them. He was trying to encourage them by teaching them what's going to happen. Jesus said in verse 33, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles. This is Jesus talking again about 
And he's referring to himself in the third person. And for those that understood the scriptures, they knew that when he, with the, the title Son of Man is from Daniel chapter 7. This is an Old Testament reference to make them know, and as a prophet back in Daniel chapter 7, that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to die and he's going to rise again from the grave. It's that this man will be betrayed. And this is speaking of Judas here. And uh, it's, a, it's a, to the chief priests and the scribes. These are those religious leaders that are going to try to find a way to try Jesus. And when the different leaders were able, weren't able to find a cause, they just told him to crucify Jesus. And said so he would be condemned to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. At the time in the Roman world, the Jews, although they have a lot of influence and reach, they could not dictate who lives and who dies. So they're using their influential proudness and trying to be really deceptive to get their way. And the Gentiles here is the Romans that they're going to, they're going to be the ones that's going to execute Jesus. Is that they will be mocked, and they will mock him, verse 34, and they'll spit on him, they'll flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And just understand this word mocking is laughing. You know, they remember the people were joking. They were saying, oh, you call yourself the son of God? And then, like, who hit you? And they'll punch him in the face. They'll spit on him. They'll put the crown of thorns. They'll taunt him. They'll whip him. They do, they'll do all of that because they're trying to, they don't see Jesus as God. Flogging him is, is something that the Jews did, but then, uh, it was handed over to the Romans. So it's like, there's a variation to it. When the Jews did their flogging, it was this stick that had, was like, three, it was like pointed, it was almost like a, like a, yeah, a little rod, but has like, it's like splintered down to three sticks, and when they whip them, it's supposed to just sting them. But the Romans would take that to another level, their, thing, their weapon of choice, a similar to that, but they added on different, what's called accessories. They put like shards of glass and animal bones, and it's called a cat of nine tails. And when they would whip the people, when the Romans would do it, they would pull out flesh and skin. And this was what was going to happen to them, or to Jesus. And then three days later, he will rise again. And all of this is, is Jesus' prediction. And, people, and the apostles, they've heard this before, but it doesn't seem to phase them which gets to our next scene. First, we see the Lord's prediction. And then next, we see the, the disciples' ambition. The disciples' ambition. Despite the fact that, they, that Jesus explained to them what was going to happen, despite the fact that Jesus is going to go through this horrendous beating and, and suffering, the re- disciples respond in this way. Verse 35, then, Jesus, then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us, whatever we ask you. Now, that seems very dismissive, right? Jesus just told them, I'm going to go through all of the suffering in accordance to God's word. And James and John's first thing that they ask is, hey, we want you to do something for us, and you have to say yes. And that's like something, that's like a trap that parents can see from a mile away. If you, and my kids haven't done this yet, but if, if my kids came up to me and said, you, daddy, what I'm going to ask you, please say yes, please say yes, before I even ask you what it is. That is a trap, because they're going to ask you something crazy, and then you're supposed to say yes. And Jesus was wise enough to discern that. Now, James and John, they were known as the sons of thunder. In fact, the other gospel account tells us that his mom, their mom, were there too. 
Their mom was there, and there, she was the one that asked, her, asked them, hey, where can, can you make sure that my sons can send your left and to your right? They ignore God's greatness, and they focus on themselves. Instead of thinking about what is about to happen, instead of thinking about how we can be praying for Jesus or how to come alongside him during all this or, or just marvel at the fact that God's plan is going to be unveiled before them, they were thinking about themselves. He describes them as teacher, which sounds very polite, but the thing that they ask is completely childish. They were thinking about themselves. There's a wrong focus here. They, 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 they're seeing God's word. They're seeing Christ explaining to them how God is going to fulfill all these things through the life of Christ. And they said they thought about themselves. And I can't help but think about just our own lives. Every single time, whenever we, whether it's Fridays or Sundays or Sunday school, whatever it may be, isn't it just like us to hear something about the Lord and discover something that is revealed in God's word? And the first reaction that we have after the sermon is to talk about something else trivial in the week, to talk about anything except the thing that we just learned about the Lord. And that shows us, just like the apostles, that we have a wrong priority. When we come to church, it should be because we want to learn about the Lord. Yes, you get to have friends and you can sharpen one another. These things are fine, but you have to understand that part of the life of the church is that we sharpen one another with the word of God. Every time we hear God's words preached, it should move us. And when we have nothing insightful to think about, that means that there's something wrong with our hearts. It's that our priorities is the wrong place. And that's what the, 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 the disciples were like. They just heard Jesus teaching them something profound, but their natural response is to think, well, what's in this for me? But yet Jesus is so kind. He is so loving towards them. He asked, what do you want me to do for you? That's a very humble response, and that's not something that I think we would do. We were just doing this we're going to explain to someone some plan we have in life, and then the first thing they say is something that's not even in this right field or ballpark or subject, we'd feel disrespected because did you not hear a word that I just said? Well, yet Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do? Verse 37, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. They want to sit on the left and the right of God. And that is a very significant thing because that just means that it's a, it's, you're closest to him. And I think some people interpret this as the disciples actually, they did understand what was going on because they knew that Christ was going to resurrect and the kingdom was coming. And they just want to know where they're going to sit once this kingdom is here. They want to be close to Christ. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think that they, want, they thought that as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, that he's just going to overthrow everything. Then he's going to reign in Jerusalem, and Rome is going to be overthrown, and Jews are going to be overthrown. And then they get the glory, and they want to be close to Christ. They essentially want the glory without the suffering, because they clearly missed the point. They wanted Jesus to reign according to their timetable. But they missed everything that Jesus said about being beat, about being flogged, about being mocked. This idea, again, it's partially true because Jesus did say that he was going to reign, 
and there's going to be a throne in his kingdom, but they have a wrong preoccupation for their own glory. Again, isn't this just like how we are? When we think about the Bible, oftentimes instead of thinking about what does this teach me about who God is? What does this tell me about uh, the character attributes of our Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit? When there's, if there's something that we can learn about trying God, instead of focusing on those things, we think, what does this have to do with me? We think we try to put ourselves into, into the text and make ourselves the center of everything. Sometimes the reason why you learn about God is really to learn about God. I think our modern-day culture and how they try to make the Bible some sort of self-help book can leak into the church, a reformed church like this one here. We could think, oh, if this passage here has nothing for me, then I'm, not going, I'm just going to dismiss this text. But if we believe that all Scripture is inspired, and that, it is, and that, that means the totality of Scripture, everything is supposed to sharpen us and equip us for every good works, then how that works is that we know about who God is first, we behold and we love him more, and that should result naturally in obedience and living in accordance to his word. But it doesn't begin by how does this help me in my marriage or how does this help me in my singleness, but it begins first by knowing who God is and beholding the preciousness of Christ before we get to ourselves. So there are some mispriorities that these disciples have because they're focusing on their own desires. Which gets to our last scene. First is this, the Lord's prediction. Second, the Lord's, the disciples' ambition. And third, the overestimation. We'll go from 39 to the end. And they said to him, sorry, verse 38, they said, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptized which I am baptized? This is one of those things where they thought that they can do it. And Jesus, when he said, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? They understood in that context, it's not speaking about like literally drinking something. They understood that it's about the wrath of God or to be baptized and with the baptism of which he's about to be baptized. They know that's not even about going into the water. The word baptism is, means submersion, and oftentimes it means that there's some sort of public declaration or union with something or someone. So Jesus is saying, are you going to be able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and identify with the suffering that I'm going to go through? And look how quick they responded. They said, we are able. There was no, let's think about this. There was no, let me pray about this. There was no contemplation. It was this immediate response. In the Greek here, it's only one word. It's like saying, yep, or mm-hmm, that's it. Without even thinking about what the, the cost of the suffering Christ, they just assumed that they're able to do this. They assume that they're able to suffer like Jesus is going to suffer. And look how Jesus responds. The cup that I drink, you shall drink. and You shall be baptized with the baptism which I am, which I am baptized. They will eventually know the suffering of Christ. And uh, this is a lot of ways, as Jesus is saying that I'm going to suffer soon, you guys are going to suffer as well. He, he, he's giving a prophecy as he's about to live through one. And these disciples will eventually get there, but the suffering that they go through 
pales in comparison to the suffering that Christ will go through. Because although the disciples and apostles suffer in the name of Christ, Christ suffered for the sins of the world. It says, you shall be baptized with baptism which I am about to baptize. Again, they are going to suffer. And this is a prophecy for them, just like how there's a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And the disciples at that time had no clue what was going to happen to them, but they will. And it is very fascinating that it's James and John. Because by God's providence and will, James is the first one that's going to get killed. He was the first of the 12 that was going to kill through a stone to death. And John was the last disciple to get killed. He was, he was stuck and exiled in the island of Patmos. He was able to write the book of Revelation. He suffered alone. They knew in retrospect what Jesus was saying at that time, but what they didn't understand it at that moment. But Jesus said, but to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. This is speaking of the Father. Is God's God, the Father, is one who assigns who sits where. And you know, if Jesus knows all things, why doesn't he know who's going to sit to the right or the left? It's because he set aside his independent knowledge of the future. And there are some things that he knows because of God's word, and there's other things that the Lord revealed to them. And this is what Philippians chapter 2 talks about, how he humbled himself, taking the form of a human. He has a limitation and capacities of humans, but that did not mean that he lost his divinity. He said, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. It is God the Father's choice to see who sits where. Now we, look, we know in the book of Revelation that that does happen, that there's going to be the 12 disciples and, the, and each of them have their throne around uh, the king and we don't know who sits where. But we know that that's going to happen and Jesus is telling them that the assignments of these chairs is, is, are these thrones is, is from God the Father. In verse 41, and hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. So they were in this crowd walking up to Jerusalem. Two of them, including James and John's mom, makes this request. They overhear this and they're upset. It says indignant. This is the word for like just fuming. And I don't think they were fuming because they were asking this question. I think they were fuming because they didn't come up with the question. They wanted to know. They wanted to ask whether it's Peter or the other disciples. I think they were just upset because they wanted this. They wanted to know who, they wanted to sit to either to the left or right of Jesus. It was this ambition they had in the human hearts that drives one another to step on the heads of others. And that's what the church is like sometimes. We sometimes want to elevate ourselves to, to high position in any ministry, and sometimes we will do whatever it takes, and that sometimes also mean, includes stepping on other people, to slander them or to show off your own abilities. You, or you get jealous and upset when people get elevated to a certain position in church, and it bothers you. But as Christians, we should not think in this way. We understand that the body of Christ has different parts and different functions, and all the body parts are valuable because God is who gives people the gifts to do things for him in the context of the church. There's no need to be jealous or upset unless, of course, pride is in your own heart. Pride hates it when other people get elevated. And this should not be in the life of the church because pride is very ugly. 
And yet Jesus kind of gathers and huddles them around, calling them to himself. Jesus said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. And Jesus is just speaking about just what just the world is like. He, he's, trying to, he's calling them over. I think he's trying to be a peacemaker here. He senses that the disciples are upset at one another. Jesus gathers them together. He just tells them, like, look, this is how the, the world thinks in this way. The world, the Gentiles, they, when they're in position, they lord it over others that are beneath them. This is just a general reality of life, but that should not be the way of the church. And it's important that they know this because the apostles, all of them, are going to be the foundation of the church, whereas Jesus is going to be the cornerstone that's going to be built upon them. And they are eventually going to be the first elders, and they're going to be the, really like the first elders of the church. They're going to be the ones that's going to usher in the new age. In First Peter chapter 5, and it's just fascinating because I think you can see in First Peter his maturity here from here in the gospel to First Peter, because his qualification for elder is this, First Peter chapter 5, verse 2 to 3, is a shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntary according to the will of God, not for sword gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those who allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So Peter eventually understands that true faithfulness has nothing to do with being in high positions to control people, but to humbly serve them. And yeah, I think he gets that down the line, but at the moment when Jesus was teaching them, they, wanted, they were scrambling to try to get to the top. And Jesus said, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It says here, and their great men exercised authority over them. These people were heavy-handed the world will always seek to put their own interest above other people. And that's something that we as believers must not be as well. The world, yes, that is how they function. It is a, if you just look at politics in the last several weeks, you can see how everyone, especially when they're trying to do all the presidential candidates and all the debates, they're just yelling at each other, trying to slander each other and mudsling, oh, just openly in front of everyone with the intent to try to bring everyone down so they can elevate themselves. And yes, even in the business world, that happens. You know, they, in, in the reports, when they do performance reviews, they'll try to talk about their own strength and all their weaknesses, while at the same time undercutting other people. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world in the world, but in the church, and as believers, that should not be a description of us. We should be very humble in the way that we think about life, the world seeks their own, but as believers, we do not seek our, our own interests. We put other people before us because that's what Jesus did for his disciples and for us as sinners. These people, these rulers, these Gentile lords, they lord it over their position. And as believers, I know some of you here will eventually become elders of this church. And I hope that the reason why you want to be elders, the reason why you want to serve in that capacity, is not because you want to have control over people but that you love the church of Christ and you love the Lord, and this is just a way in which you serve the body of Christ. Notice how Jesus continued teaching them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be a servant. Believers must always be a humble people. They're focused, the disciples here, they're focused on the wrong thing here. And Jesus wanted to 
help them think what true greatness is. True greatness involves being a humble servant. This word servant is the idea of slave, and that greatness comes by doing the most humble thing. I know in our, in our, in this, especially Friday nights, we have a lot of, you know, we have food, we have a lot of things going on, and there is a very, it's very tempting for us to assume, especially as the church gets bigger and bigger, we think, well, someone else can clean up after us. And yes, there will always be those people that want to help because they're thinking about how to serve you, but I think all of us should have this attitude when we think about this building. I know that sometimes we get these emails saying, hey, please clean up out of yourselves, you've left this behind, and sometimes they are mistakes, I get that. But we should be mindful because every time we leave something behind or we don't clean up after ourselves, we're really not thinking about other people as more important than ourselves. We need, to, we need to be more aware of our surroundings. Now, that's just one application. Just, I mean, you could think about that even in your own home. You know, if you're living at home, you learn to care about your family members as more important than yourself, especially if they're non-believers. That's a great opportunity to, t- to show what Christ is like, who's willing to humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. If G- and if we want to emulate Christ, then we should be willing to clean up after ourselves, to put the clothes away, to clean, to do the dishes or, or take out the trash, that you're willing to lay down your own life, to expend yourself because this is a picture of our Savior. Don't think that just because we live in this, you know, first world country that, that it means that we don't need to be humble servants. I think our world thinks in those terms. They think they have enough, this high education or have a certain amount of money and all these things are beneath them. But as believers, that should not be our attitude. Nothing should be beneath us, whether it is cleaning up after ourselves here in the church or at home or wherever. There, should be, there shouldn't be anything that we wouldn't do because Christ would have done exactly the same thing. Jesus was willing to wash the disciples' feet. He's willing to lay down his life for his friends, and we should be willing to do that for one another. I'm not saying be a creep and grab soap and start scrubbing each other's feet, but you get the idea that you're, you have this attitude of servanthood, that you are willing to lay down yourself, you're willing to be a slave for one another. And when that happens, there's going to be this, the church will thrive, not in terms of like numbers, but there's just going to be this love of Christ that's demonstrated towards one another. Notice in verse 44, it said, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. This word all in the Greek is all. It means that it's for everyone. If you want to be first in the eyes of God, it's not necessary to elevate yourself in a higher position or get a greater title, but rather you humble yourself and be a slave to all, to everyone around you. I'm grateful that our church has so many different ways in which people can serve. I'm thankful that we have those, we have the AV, we have the light people, we have the people that's downstairs doing nursery. I'm thankful for those that are helpful, helping out with the doors. And there's always something to do in the church. There's always something that you can do to be part of the church body. And oftentimes the people who do not want to serve is because they have a consumer mentality about the church. They think to themselves, well, I'm here. I already worked all week. I served in all these other capacities. This is my time to veg out. And that's not the case. Jesus expended himself for these disciples and for those around him. He gave us an example of what servanthood is like. And we need to be like that to one another. We want to, be, we want to decrease. And when we decrease, Christ 
is increase in our lives. Christianity is a very humble religion. We're not to compete against one another. We, we, rather, we think of others as more important than ourselves. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to the one in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervence in spirit, serving the Lord. You, you have to understand that when we serve one another, this is our way of worship to the Lord. It's an act of worship. And Jesus said, how you treat one another is how you would treat me. And when you think about how you treat your brothers and sisters in the faith, is that how you would treat our Lord? Would you not go to the extra mile for our Savior? And if that's the case, why won't you do the same for those who are made in his image and that, you know, people that we are brothers and sisters in eternity with? We are the family of God, and, and Jesus is our example of someone that's willing to sacrifice and lay down his life for the sheep. And we should be willing to do the same. But the only thing that will hold you back is if you're prideful. If you elevate your own view of self-worth and you, you elevate your own ego, then you will think serving is not something that belongs to you. And if that's the case, if that is your attitude, then heaven doesn't belong to you either. Because God said he opposes the proud but give grace to the humble. You can't get into heaven if you have a high view of yourself. And that means that for all of us as Christians here, we should be humble because we understand what was given to us so that we can get access to heaven is by the most humble person in all of existence, and that is Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 45, for even the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His, he, Jesus came to the world, yes, it is ultimately for God's glory, but, he, but there is a benefit to that, and that is that we were ransomed from sin. Now, I don't want you guys to think this word ransom means that like in the, cause, in the cosmos or in the cosmic realm that God and Satan have some sort of had to make some sort of deal to ransom us from the devil. I don't think that's the, the picture here. Yes, there's images of us being like saved and rescued from the domain of darkness, but I don't think he's talking, it's not supposed to be like this literal thing going on in the heavens, but I think it's supposed to be a picture of what it takes for us to be saved, that someone needs to die, that this is substitutionary atonement, that someone needs to pay for us so that we can get into heaven, that it, our eternal life costed his life. We were in the clutches of sin and death, and Jesus humbled himself and gave us and ransomed his life so that we have eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate expression of true greatness. That, and that is not necessarily the miraculous thing that he does, which is true, but the greatest thing that he's done is that he's willing to come out of heaven and dwell among sinners and live that perfect life. He made a way for us to be saved because he was willing, because he was, because he was humble. He loved us, and that's why he did it. He did not place his own desires, but even said later on he, that he, when, when he's about to go through all the trials, the mock trial and everything, he said, not my will, but your will be done. He 
was focusing on the glory of God, and in doing so, we became a beneficiary for his sacrifice. Jesus died for us. Jesus made, uh, Jesus models what self-sacrifice is like. And again, Jesus said, if you, how do you know if you truly love someone? And it's by, if you're willing to lay down your life for them, that's a high calling. And that's, but yet that's not some exceptional call. It's not saying you need to only do this for your spouse. It's saying to anyone, if you want to show that you have a genuine love for your brothers and sisters in the faith, you, you should be willing to lay down your life for them. But if you want to do that, if you want to glorify God, you need to be a very humble person. Jesus is the only cure to your pride. If Christ is the one that can, is, if, if we want to elevate Christ in our life, then we need to humble ourselves. Pride keeps us from glorifying God. Pride keeps us from entering to heaven. And pride keeps us from looking like Christ. And Again, when we look at the disciples here, we think, oh, that's not. I mean, we, we look at them almost scoffing and laughing at them for their failures. But we have to see ourselves in it too, in that we are just like them. We like to think about ourselves, even though we're engaging God's word. We think about our own self-interest. We think about being first. But look at Jesus. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And that should be our attitude when we think about the life as a Christian. That if Jesus is willing to do this for me, then me serving other people should be nothing because Christ gave so much for me to have this eternal life. If I'm willing to sacrifice 30 minutes or 15 minutes for the brethren, it's no big deal. But in order for you to do that, you need to have a high view of God and a low view of yourself. Let's close our time in prayer. Father God, thank you for your humility that you condescended yourself. You came into this world not because we are worthy of salvation, but you came into this world and if, uh, although you existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but you emptied yourself, taking a form of a, of a slave and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. You humbled yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Lord, may you be our model in, our, in this life. That when we think about servanthood, that we look to Christ. That we look at greatness, that we look to Christ. That is, this life is not our own, but it is ransom and it belongs to you. Lord, help us as we think about our life to not elevate ourselves, to think so highly of ourselves, but have a right perspective of us. Lord, we know that you oppose the proud, but yet gives tremendous grace to the humble. Lord, help us to think rightly about ourselves to see who we are in your eyes before we were saved, that we were wretched sinners, undeserving of any good thing, but yet because of what you have done, we are now sons and daughters of you, Lord. May we care for our brothers and sisters here. May we be willing to die to ourselves, and may we be willing to serve because that's what you came 
to serve us, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity to learn about you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.